It's good to see you this morning. It's good to be here. So glad so many of you stayed rather than going out with the children for the root beer floats. I was very tempted. It's a good day. It's a good day. It's always a good day when Jesus is around. So we're in the middle of an immerse Bible study, looking at the opening books of the Old Testament. You've already spent time in Genesis, and we're in Exodus again today. Today we focus on that mountaintop experience that was read about just a little while ago, the fact that Jesus went up the mountain with a couple of his disciples at the time when they were beginning to understand that he was far more than a man, that he was someone greatly significant in their lives, and that he was God himself. Remember that when Jesus went on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, the voice spoke from heaven affirming who he was. And remember also that when Jesus was on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, two others showed up, right? Who showed up with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. Why? Moses, who is the writer or the source of the Pentateuch, the books Genesis through Deuteronomy, and Elijah because he's the first of the great prophets. And so we look at that today, when God came on another mountain at another time, Mount Sinai, and God spoke to Moses, and God's relationship with Israel was founded. Here's the passage from Exodus chapter 30, uh, 24. When Moses went and told the people all of the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything that the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it on the bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Wow. What a thing to have been there at that time, at that mountain, at that place. But here we are jumping into the middle of the story. I remember coming home one uh, evening after the day at the church and church meetings, and we sat down for our evening meal. And our girls were very young at that time, and one of the things that I mentioned was that I had had lunch that day with another pastor, we knew each other a long time ago. My wife said, how long ago did you meet him? I said, well, I actually dated his sister when I was in high school. Uh, she already knew that. But there were three pairs of very wide eyes on little girls around the table. Daddy? Did you love somebody before you loved mommy? Yeah. And then they all swiveled and turned to Brenda and said, Mommy, 
did you love somebody before you loved daddy? No, she said, no, no, not possible. We all jump into the middle of the story. I talk with my students and we talk about the fact that nothing really of importance happened in the entire history of this world before they were born. We jump into the middle of the story, right? We jump into the middle of the story. And so we jump into the middle of the story here. I remember late one Friday evening, I was working the usual weekend shift at WFUR in Grand Rapids, putting myself through seminary. The phone light began to flash at 11.33 p.m. The voice at the other end was obviously inebriated and under the influence. A woman with slurred speech finally talked to me. Is this, is this the radio station with the religious music? And we got into a conversation, a conversation about how she had taken all of her pills and some alcohol and that she was just wanting the music from our radio station to be with her as she dropped into eternity. She had had too much of life and life was not good. She had experienced too much of the darker side of things. I kept her on the line, I tried to get information, but she was savvy enough not to give me anything. I finally gave her my home phone number so that she could call if there was a possibility. I had to do a station ID and headline news and weather at midnight. I asked her to stay on the line, but when I got back to it after the news, she was gone. She was gone. I jumped into the middle of her story, a tragic story. We jump into the middle of this story in a very powerful way because it is a tragic story. It's the story that started out so well, right? Story of love. Can you imagine what it was that caused God to make this world that we live in? Can you imagine what gave the Father, Son, and Spirit the idea to create us in His image? I can only think about the love that the Father and the Son and the Spirit share with one another and the sense that this is so good, so good. You've had the experience at times when you were madly in love, gratefully in love, bigly in love. You knew what love could do, how transformative it was. And you hardly could contain yourself because you were so much bigger than your body. How wonderful it was to be in love. And there's God, madly in love. How can we share this love? Sometimes with human creatures, it means children are born. And we can't love anyone more than we love our spouse. And yet along comes a third. And we love and love multiplies. And then another, and then another. And here's what must have been in God's trinity, in God's community saying, the love we share, can we multiply this love? And God created humans in God's own image. Here we are, created out of the love of God. But the story quickly turned dark, didn't it? The story turned dark so rapidly. Because if I love my wife, if I love my children, I must love them with the freedom that love brings. They must have the freedom also to love, but to choose 
other ways. And that's where the story went. All God's kids left home. Everybody ran away. Within a short while, nobody even remembered where home was or who the parent was, our Heavenly Father. We ran away from home, and the story gets darker and darker as we go into the night trying to find religious music on the radio but not knowing even what the songs are all about. It gets darker and darker as we want someone to love, and every time we turn to someone who wants to love us, that love becomes manipulative. And we hurt one another, and we fight, and we separate, and we die. We kill for love, and love becomes very dark. The whole book of Genesis is really about that, you know. The Bible doesn't begin in Genesis. The Bible begins in Exodus. Let me be very careful about that. The Bible does not begin in Genesis. The Bible begins in Exodus as a written document. Go through all of the text, all of the stories, all of the things that we read about in Genesis. Notice that Adam and Eve did not have a Bible. They met with God, yes, but they did not have a written document. They did not have a Bible. We go through the stories, Lamech, Cain, Abel, Seth, they did not have a Bible. We'll go through the stories, Noah met with God. God met with Noah, but Noah didn't have a Bible. The stories turn to the family of Terah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his descendants. They all met with God, at least the key figures met with God. God met with them, but there was no Bible there. The Bible doesn't show up until the passage we just read this morning from Exodus 24, where finally when Moses meets with God on the mountain, then Moses comes down and he starts writing, and he wrote the book of the covenant. That is really pretty powerful. Now, Genesis itself has a pattern, has a plan. We're going to be talking about covenant this morning, and part of covenant involves a historical prologue. Why in the world would anybody make a covenant? Kind of like people coming to the marriage day. Yes, on TV, you can have instant marriages married without sighting one another, not so in real life. By the time people come to get married, most always they have spent time together and there is a backstory to this. So it is with God and Israel at Mount Sinai. They have met each other before and there is a backstory to this. And part of the covenant involves writing down the backstory. The little backstory is the first 19 chapters of Exodus. The big backstory is Genesis. God created everything good. This is the way he intended for it to be and finally got around after everything else to creating humans in the image of God, capable of love, of being loved, of sharing love, of multiplying love, made in the image of God. And then the freedom of love took a different course than anybody expected and things fell apart. We see that long list of bad things that happened as individuals rebelled and rejected and turned to their own ways and killed one another. Cain kills Abel and Lamech several generations later says, I've killed me a bunch of people. How great am I? And during those times, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There's the next major move of God 
Can we restore this thing? Can we do a do-over? Can we make it right again? Can we get back on track? Everything that God said to Abraham or to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God says again to Noah, be fruitful, multiply, take care of the earth. It's a do-over for God. And God sets his bow in the heavens, making certain that there will never be a destructive force like this again. So everything's better, right? Eh. Then comes the Tower of Babel. And that's the next one. The community of humankind, all of the descendants of Noah and his family, they openly rebel against Father in heaven. They openly reject the possibility of returning home. They continue down the path of destruction. And that's where the story of the Bible really begins. The story of redemptive salvation. Because God says, what am I going to do now? How can I do this without wiping out everybody? What can I do? And God takes one small family and God teaches one small family about the things of heaven, about the things of God, about the things of love. And God plants that one family in a particular place. And that's the story we're reading about this morning. We see in Genesis a variety of things happening. We see how Abraham's family shifts over the years and how selections are made. But basically, we get, begin to see the story how, how God is trying again to influence the whole of humankind. And if God can influence the whole of humankind, then finally, 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 maybe some will find love. Maybe love will return to planet Earth. And that's where we jump into the story today. The story is something that begins broader than Israel herself. The story begins with other nations, all who are God's people too. All peoples are God's peoples. But how will God recall all of the kids, bring them all back home, teach them again how to love? In the world of Israel's day, one of the most powerful nations at the time in the ancient Near East were the Hittites. You know one of the Hittites. You remember him from another story. Remember there was a king named David? And remember he was a great and powerful king? Remember also he had this affair with a person. Remember her name, Bathsheba? She was already married to who? Uriah the Hittite. This is the great nation of the Hittites. Now we would call it Central Turkey. In those days, the Hittites had armies and they had trade and they managed to take over much of the ancient Near East or at least have client states everywhere. And in order to manage their client states well, they developed something that's come, no, come to be known as the Suzerain Vassal Treaty. That means simply the king and subjects, the one in charge and those of us who owe our life to the one up there. The Suzerain Vassal Treaty. If you go to any city in the United States today and you're starting over with your life and you want to rent an apartment, you go to the leasing office and you talk about what's going to take place. They don't sit down and take all the details of your life. They pull a standard renter's contract out of the drawer. You can go to any city in the United States and the contracts are all the same. You just fill in your name and you fill in how much you're going to pay and you fill in the details, how they're going to get their money and all of that and you sign on the bottom line. That's a standard renter's agreement. 
This was the standard treaty among the nations of that time. Everybody knew about this. There were so many of them. Archaeologists today have uncovered literally thousands of those. But the Hittites had done something that managed to standardize it in a way that everybody said, well, that makes a lot of sense. Let's do that. Into six parts. There was a preamble who was in charge, the suzerain, the king, the one who was setting this all in motion. Uh, there was a historical prologue. How did we get here? What was it that caused us to come into this relationship at this time for this reason in this way? Then there were the stipulations, and of course, the stipulations are the most important. What are you going to do? What am I going to do? The king would say, I'm going to protect your borders. If their enemies attack you, I'll be there with my armies. If there's a time when the grain crop has failed, you can eat from my granaries. I will make sure you have food. I will protect you. What are you going to do? You're going to supply me with a tenth of your grain every year or the animals from your flocks. You're going to send some of your young men to serve in my armies. This is a two-way street. You know, you do, I do, and we live together quite well. Then, of course, there would be the uh, curses and blessings, always in that order, curses first. If you don't do this, watch out. If you mess up, Boy, is it going to be bad for you. There have been doctoral dissertations written about these things. May the fleas of a thousand camels invade your armpits if you don't keep to this. You would not like that. There are lots of curses. And the blessings. If we do these things, life, life will be good. Life will matter. Life will be great. You know? Then came the witnesses, and the witnesses were typically the gods, the gods of the area, the gods of the storms, the gods of the rivers, the gods of the mountains, the gods of the powers that we see and cannot otherwise understand, the gods we name because they have impact on our lives. And then came something that scholars, for lack of words, can you imagine that? Simply call the document clause. It's the catch-all at the end how the covenant is going to be ratified, how this covenant will be copied, where the copies will be kept, how often it will be taken out and read to remind people because they don't have phones that they can take out during the middle of the service and check to see what the scores are. Uh, what, what all is going on uh, in your life? Uh, this is what takes place in the document clause. Now, What's so fascinating about that? Everybody in every ancient Near Eastern civilization knew about this suzerain vassal covenant. Every people was shaped roughly in this manner. Look at this. Go back to Exodus 24. Go back to Exodus 20 through 24. The start of the Bible, the beginning of the Bible, the kernel, the nugget, the seed of the Bible begins right here at Mount Sinai. God has a problem, and the problem is compounded. Part of the problem is that all the kids left home and they don't know how to come back, and God doesn't know how to get them back. And part of the problem is that they don't communicate anymore. In fact, they don't know how to communicate. How does God communicate to someone who doesn't want to be communicated with? 
We've been having these spring-like temperatures. I think of that on campus. I think of that here. Imagine that you're walking out of the building this morning and you're going down a sidewalk and the ants begin to think that they own the place. They do. Top eight layer, eight feet of uh, earth is basically the, the home of the ants and the worms, things like that. They own it more than we do. But sometimes they come out to the surface. Imagine that you're walking down the sidewalk and suddenly this ant scurries in front of you. You can be oblivious to it and end its life. You can pay attention and walk around it or over it. But imagine that you said, there's a bunch of people coming behind me and this is not a safe place and you're going to be in trouble. How would you communicate that to that ant? How would you get down on your knees, on your fours, go down there and say, hey, ant, this is not a good place. Could you take another path? Would you quick print a sign on some cardboard and hold it up and say, don't move here. This is people area. How would you communicate to that ant? We couldn't. We can't. So what could you do if it were possible? You could become an ant and use your antennae to start communicating with the others. Now, in essence, that's what the covenant is. Everybody in Israel's day, everybody in those times knew what a Hittite, Susur, and Vassal covenant was. Because the only way that life was organized was not by me personally. There was no such thing as a me personally. I belonged to a clan, to a tribe, to a group. This group belonged to the one who was at the head. And the one at the head dictated how we lived, who we were, what our identity was, how we functioned in society. And if that was to be the case, genius God, God is always genius, genius God says, I will do what they know. The problem of God was the kids left home, didn't know how to come back, God couldn't talk with them. God came down and made a covenant. They know that. They understand that. After all, they belong to the Pharaoh of Egypt by way of a covenant. Whether written or not written, they belong to Pharaoh. That's whose they were. And that's why the, the stories from last week, from the early part of Exodus, are so powerful. What happens in those plagues in Egypt, those horrible stories, terrible stories. We ought not to take that lightly or easily. These are devastating things. But notice, notice, notice. Never, ever, ever is it the battle between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Did you catch that? The battle is never between the Israelites and the Egyptians. The battle is only between Yahweh, the Lord, the God, and the Pharaoh, the God in person form among the Egyptians. Now, what is Egypt? We look at Egypt and we think it's this big square on the northeast side of Africa. No, 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 no. Egypt has not been, is never just a big square with dotted lines on maps. Egypt is the Nile, the land along the Nile, and the sun. 
Egypt exists because of the gift of the Nile. Who sends the Nile? The gods send the Nile. There could be no water here, there could be no growing crops, there could be no life here except for the Nile. Where are the gods? Why do they send it? We don't know. They're so far upstream, we've never been able to get there. But they keep sending, the gods keep sending, and so we're grateful for that. This is why when Yahweh comes to rescue the people who are the family of Aaron to set up shop in a place that'll influence the rest of the world of that day, Yahweh does battle with the Pharaoh. And notice the plagues, the 10 plagues systematically wipe out any claim the Pharaoh has to the power of the Nile, turns to blood, then it creeps out in frogs and invades our houses with death to the land, which was our friend, but becomes our enemy and produces diseases, to the skies above, that instead of sending the blessing of sunshine, send us the artillery of heaven that kills us and invading armies like the locusts, and then the sun goes out entire. What? Our God is gone. And through that all, Yahweh comes, does battle with the Pharaoh, with the God of the Egyptians. Let my people go. And God claims God's people. And at Mount Sinai, as they wander through the desert, they begin to know how much God loves them. For they are the people who have been claimed and loved by the God who can shake all of the nations of the earth. And that's what's going on in Exodus 24, when the altars are set up, when the blood is spilled, when the drops of blood are scattered, the covenant, the covenant is made. And God's people know who they are, and God's people know whose they are. Margaret Mead, the great anthropologist, cultural anthropologist, was speaking at a university many years ago. She became famous for that book, Coming of Age in Samoa. She was speaking at a large audience in a large auditorium, and after her message, they had microphones stationed strategically so that people could come and ask her questions one of the university students asked her a question, Ms. Mead. From all of your study, your research, when do you think that civilization begins anywhere on planet Earth? Well, that was a good question. Could it be when there's the domestication of livestock? Could it be then when crops are begun to be sown and harvested so one does not have to range so far to get food? Could it be when there are representations of art and artwork and symbolic metaphors? Could it be when uh, there are uh, implements of war or of farming? Could it be that there's evidence of language? When does civilization begin? And Ms. Mead said something quite astounding. She said, civilization, I believe, begins wherever we send archaeologists and they find the bones of folks and discover a healed femur. What? 
a healed femur, this bone right here. Why? Why would that be a sign of civilization? Because, said Ms. Mead, the law of the jungle is this, you fall, you die. If the animal is after you, the animal with great jaws and a hungry stomach, you fall, you die. If the enemy is pursuing you with its spears and its arrows, you fall, you die. If you're on your own, hunting, fishing, walking, and you stumble and you break your femur, you fall, you die, you cannot make it to safety. So if there is the possibility that we find a femur has been healed, you know what it means, don't you? It means that someone, at great expense to their own safety, stood with the one who fall, stood there and beat back the enemies, stood there and waved off the wild beast, went looking for food for two, went looking for water for two, dragged that one who could not walk on her or his own to a place of safety, stood guard, built a fire, got, got more food, kept the enemies away, nurtured health back to that person. Ms. Mead said, when we know that there is a healed femur, we know that civilization has arrived. Because someone, someone, has jumped into the middle of that story. And someone has said, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. You can count on me, put my name on every date of your planner from here to eternity. I am with you. I love you. There's where the Bible begins. I'm here because of that. And so are you. Pray with me. Thank you for making promises into our lives, for speaking in ways that we can understand, even though your voice is often beyond our grasp. Give us the courage to live as if this matters and as if we can love those who are also your children. In the name of Jesus, amen.